0: Chapter 3 of Across the Reef, The Marine Assault of Tarawa, by Joseph H. Alexander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Assault Preparations As replacement troops began to pour into New Zealand, General Smith requested the assignment of Colonel Merritt A. Red Mike Edson as Division Chief of Staff. The Fiery Edson, already a legend in the Corps for his heroic exploits in Central America and Guadalcanal, worked tirelessly to forge the amalgam of veterans and newcomers into an effective amphibious team. Intelligence reports from Basio were sobering. The island, devoid of natural defilade positions and narrow enough to limit maneuver room, favored the defenders. Basio was less than 3 miles long, no broader than 800 yards at its widest point, and contained no natural elevation higher than 10 feet above sea level. Every place on the island can be covered by direct rifle and machine gun fire, observed Edson. The elaborate defenses prepared by Admiral Sachiro were impressive. Concrete and steel tetrahedrons, minefields, and long strings of double apron barbed wire protected beach approaches. The Japanese also built a barrier wall of logs and coral around much of the island. Tank traps protected heavily fortified command bunkers and firing positions inland from the beach and everywhere there were pillboxes, nearly 500 of them, most fully covered by logs, steel plates, and sand. The Japanese on Bayshore were equipped with 8-inch, turret-mounted naval rifles, the so-called Singapore guns, as well as a large number of heavy-caliber coast-defense, anti-aircraft, anti-boat, and field artillery guns and howitzers. Dual-purpose 13-millimeter heavy machine guns were prevalent. Light tanks mounting thirty seven millimeter guns, fifty millimeter knee mortars, and an abundance of seven point seven millimeter light machine guns complemented the defensive weaponry. The Japanese during August replaced Sachiro with Rear Admiral Michi Shibasaki, an officer reputed to be more of a fighter than an engineer. American intelligence sources estimated the total strength of the Beisho garrison to be four thousand eight hundred men of whom some 2,600 were considered first-rate naval troops. Imperial Japanese Marines, Edson told the war correspondents, the best Tojo's got. Edson's 1st Raider Battalion had sustained 88 casualties in resting Tulagi from the 3rd Cure Special Naval Landing Force the previous August. Admiral Shibasaki boasted to his troops, a million Americans couldn't take Tarawa in 100 years. His optimism was forgivable the island was the most heavily defended atoll that ever would be invaded by Allied forces in the Pacific. Task Force 53 sorely needed detailed tidal information for Tarawa. Colonel Shoup was confident that the LVTs could negotiate the reef at any tide, but he worried about the remainder of the assault troops, tanks, artillery, and reserve forces that would have to come ashore in Higgins boats, LCVPs. The critical water depth over the reef was four feet, enough to float a laden LCVP. Anything less and the troops would have to wade ashore several hundred yards against that panoply of Japanese weapons. Major Frank Holland, a New Zealand reserve officer with 15 years' experience sailing the waters of Tarawa, flatly predicted, there won't be three feet of water on the reef. Shoup took Holland's warning seriously and made sure the troops knew in advance that there was a 50-50 chance of having to wade ashore. In the face of the daunting Japanese defenses and the physical constraints of the island, Shoup proposed a landing plan which included a sustained preliminary bombardment, advanced seizure of neighboring Bairiki Island as an artillery fire base, and a decoy landing. General Smith took this proposal to the planning conference in Pearl Harbor with the principal officers involved in Operation Galvanic, Admirals Nimitz, Spruance, Turner, and Hill, and Major General Holland Smith, the Marines were stunned to hear the restrictions imposed on their assault by Sink-Pak. Nimitz declared that the requirement for strategic surprise limited preliminary bombardment of Basio to about three hours on the morning of D-Day. The imperative to concentrate naval forces to defend against a Japanese fleet sortie also ruled out advanced seizure of Bariki and any decoy landings. Then Holland Smith announced his own bombshell. The 6th Marines would be withheld as Corps Reserve. All of Julian Smith's tactical options had been stripped away. The 2nd Marine Division was compelled to make a frontal assault into the teeth of Batio's defenses with an abbreviated preparatory bombardment. Worse, loss of the 6th Marines meant he would be attacking the island fortress with only a 2-to-1 superiority in troops, well below the doctrinal minimum. Shaken, he insisted that Holland Smith absolve him of any responsibility for the consequences. This was done. David Shoup returned to New Zealand to prepare a modified operations order and select the landing beaches. Baisho, located on the southwestern tip of Tarawa near the entrance to the lagoon, took the shape of a small bird lying on its back with its breast facing north into the lagoon. The Japanese had concentrated their defenses on the southern and western coasts, roughly the bird's head and back, where they themselves had landed. By contrast, the northern beaches, the bird's breast, had calmer waters in the lagoon and, with one deadly exception, the re were convex. Defenses in this sector were being improved daily but were not yet complete. A 1,000-yard pier which jutted due north over the fringing reef into deeper lagoon waters, in effect the bird's legs, was an attractive logistics target. It was an easy decision to select the northern coast for landing beaches, but there was no real safe avenue of approach. Looking at the north shore of Basio from the line of departure within the lagoon, Shoup designated three landing beaches, each 600 yards in length. From right to left, these were Red Beach 1 from Basio's northwestern tip, the Bird's Beak, to a point just east of the re Red Beach 2 from that juncture to the pier, Red Beach 3, from the pier eastward. Other beaches were designated as contingencies, notably Green Beach along the western shore, the Bird's Head. Julian Smith had intended to land with two regiments abreast and one in reserve. Loss of the 6th Marines forced a major change. Shoup's modified plan assigned the 2nd Marines, reinforced by landing team LT-28, 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, as the assault force. The rest of the 8th Marines would constitute the Division Reserve. The attack would be preceded by advance seizure of the pier by the Regimental Scout Sniper Platoon, Lt. William D. Hawkins. Landing abreast at H. hour would be LT-32, 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines, Major John F. Shettle, and Red 1, LT-22, 2nd Battalion, 2nd Marines, Lt. Col. Herbert R. Amy, Jr., on Red 2 and LT-28, Major Henry P. Jim Crow, on Red 3. Major Wood B. Kyle's LT-12, 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines, would be on call as the Regimental Reserve. General Smith scheduled a large-scale amphibious exercise in Hawke's Bay for the 1st of November and made arrangements for New Zealand trucks to haul the men back to Wellington at the conclusion in time for a large dance. Complacently, the entire 2nd Marine Division embarked aboard 16 amphibious ships for the routine exercise. It was all an artful ruse. The ships weighed anchor and headed north for Operation Galvanic. For once, Tokyo Rose had no clue of the impending campaign. Most of Task Force 53 assembled in Afate, New Hibrides on 7 November. Admiral Hill arrived on board Maryland. The Marines, now keenly aware that an operation was underway, were more interested in the arrival from Numia of fourteen Sherman M four A two tanks on board the dock landing ship Ashland, LSD one. The division had never operated with medium tanks before. The landing rehearsals at Afate did little to prepare the Marines for Basio. The fleet carriers and their embarked air wings were off assaulting targets in the Solomons. The Sherman tanks had no place to offload. The new LVT-2s were presumably somewhere to the north, underway directly for Tarawa. Naval gunships bombarded Erratica Island well away from the troops' landing at Malay Bay. One overlooked aspect of the rehearsal paid subsequent dividends for the Marines in the coming assault. Major William K. Willie K. Jones, commanding LT-16, took the opportunity to practice embarking his troops in rubber rafts. In the pre-war Fleet Marine Force, the 1st Battalion in each regiment had been designated the Rubber Boat Battalion. The uncommon sight of this mini-flotilla inspired numerous catcalls from other Marines. Jones himself was dubbed the Admiral of the Condom Fleet. The contentious issue during the post-rehearsal critique was the suitability of the naval gunfire plan. The target island was scheduled to receive the greatest concentration of naval gunfire of the war to date. Many senior naval officers were optimistic of the outcome. "'We do not intend to neutralize the island. We do not intend to destroy it,' boasted one admiral. "'Gentlemen, we will obliterate it.' But General Smith had heard enough of these boasts. In a voice taut with anger, he stood to address the meeting. "'Even though you naval officers do come in to about 1,000 yards, I remind you that you have a little armor.' I want you to know the Marines are crossing the beach with bayonets and the only armor they'll have is a khaki shirt. While at a fate, Colonel William Marshall, commanding Combat Team 2 and scheduled for the major assault role at Basio, became too ill to continue. In a memorable decision, General Smith promoted David Shoup to Colonel and ordered him to relieve Colonel Marshall. Shoup knew the second Marines and he certainly knew the plan. The architect was about to become the executor. Once underway from Afate, Admiral Hill ordered the various commanders of Task Force 53 to brief the troops on their destination and mission. Tarawa came as a surprise to most of the men. Many had wagered they were heading for Wake Island. On the day before D-Day, General Julian Smith sent a message to the officers and men of the Second Division. In it, the commanding general sought to reassure his men that, unlike the Guadalcanal campaign, the Navy would stay and provide support throughout. The troops listened attentively to these words coming over the loudspeakers. A great offensive to destroy the enemy in the Central Pacific has begun. Our Navy screens our operation and will support our attack tomorrow with the greatest concentration of aerial bombardment and naval gunfire in the history of warfare. It will remain with us until our objective is secured. Garrison troops are already en route to relieve us as soon as we have completed our job. Good luck and God bless you all. As the sun began to set on Task Force 53 on the evening of D-1, it appeared that strategic surprise had indeed been attained. More good news came with the report that the small convoy of LSTs bearing LVT-2s had arrived safely from Samoa and was joining the formation. All the pieces seemed to be coming together. End of Chapter 3, read by Aaron Bennett.